Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. So yes, we're looking at some New Testament passages now that form a core theme, an important theme for us. And we talked last week about uh, the reality that we're dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven, Paul says, but we're also citizens of this nation, of the here and now, right? And we looked at the fact that, that is kind of, you know, it presents some challenges for us. Anybody else realize we have some challenges as Christians, you know, living in any nation, but in our nation at this moment, we looked at the tension that we feel because we're dual citizens. And as we continue to study from the word, um, this is going to become a very practical time for us as we learn together from the word of God, because how many of you guys know the word of God talks to us about how we act, not just what we think. But how we live, how we act, how we speak, how we listen, how we react to things, and yes, how we think. And we need to hear from the Word of God on these things. Amen? But first, today, we're going to look at the most fundamental thing that we need to get right. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning? We're going to be in 1 Peter 2. We're going to look at verse 4 through 17. And this might sound familiar if you were with us last week. Uh, this might sound familiar to you because it has a lot of overlap with what Paul was saying last week. All right, you ready for the word? Yes. Here we go. Peter says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Today, I want to talk to us in this conversation about who we are. I mean, so much of what Peter says there, he's saying, this is who we are. Amen? We're going to talk about three things from Peter this morning. The first is an uncomfortable reality. 
and then an unpopular choice, and finally, the unparalleled promises for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you deposited these things, not just for the people that Peter was writing to then, but for us here and now in the situations we face on a daily basis. We give you permission, Lord, to come and to speak to us about our lives, about every area of our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, stir things up in us, change us. We don't just come into this place uh, to sing a few songs and to hear something and to go about our merry way and not be changed. God, we want you to change us. We want you to transform us day by day so we look more like you. Lord, we give you permission. We pray that you would stir our hearts again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My son, Ethan, is five years old, as most of you know. And how many of you guys know that five-year-olds can get a bit bossy at times? Anybody experience this with a, with a little one? You know, he's trying out sort of where the boundaries are in his life. And I have no idea where he gets that from. Yeah, it's definitely not from Laura. It's definitely all from me. I look at him and I see a mirror image and it terrifies me in so many ways. But he gets a little bossy and oftentimes I have to remember him. I just pull him aside and say, hey, buddy, remember, you know, you're not the boss. Any parents had to have this conversation with their kids like this morning? Um, but you're not the boss, I have to say to him. And you can see his wheels turning. You know, like me having this conversation, with him, it makes him a little uncomfortable. Why? Because he wants to be the boss, right? Why shouldn't things go the way that he decides? He wants to be in control. But if we're honest with ourselves, that same thing makes us uncomfortable in our lives, doesn't it? The recognition that, hey, you're not the boss here. You're not the boss. To be under the authority or the command of others, it does make us uncomfortable. And oftentimes, we have to be real, that's because our experience of human authority is flawed at best. Anybody say amen to that one? Our experience of human authority is kind of a mixed bag oftentimes. Anybody here ever had a bad boss that they served under? Yeah, okay. If your boss is in the room, <laughs> keep your hand down. <laughs> Yeah, I know I've been there before and had to serve people who I kind of had a lot of questions about. Maybe they were a bit shady. Yeah, anybody ever serve somebody who you say, actually their ethics were kind of questionable? Yeah, almost everybody, if we're honest, has had those experiences. Maybe not a boss, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was somebody in your life who you're kind of going, you know what, they're not a really great representation of human authority. We've all had experience with earthly authority figures that has kind of marked our lives. And anytime we look at a passage in scripture that touches on this, we gotta be real with ourselves. That we've had these experiences, that our experience of authority is sort of jeopardized in some ways. But does that mean we throw away what scripture says to us? I don't think so. Peter uses a word, like we saw last week in Romans, that we don't like. He uses the word submit. How many of you guys are like, yeah, I love that word. I love being not the boss. I love coming under the authority of others. We don't like that word. I, I uh, had the privilege of performing a wedding uh, yesterday for a young couple. It's fantastic. And um, a lot of times during a wedding, we read that passage from Ephesians chapter 5 that uses the word submit a lot. And I always say the joke, it's a little concerning when that's the only passage of scripture that a husband has memorized is wives, submit to your husbands is unto the Lord. That's a problem, right? But whether it's with a boss or a leader or somebody in your life, that the Lord has placed an authority over you in any capacity. Submitting to authority bothers us. It bothers us. 
The word that Paul uses and Peter uses here is a little bit misunderstood. The word is hupotasso. From the Greek, it means freedom through order. It has roots in kind of military understanding. And it means to come into proper order, proper rank, under proper authority. But overall, what it means is that we are not God. We are not God. We're not the creator. We are part of creation. We have a role to play. There is a proper place in God's order for us. But we have to be honest first and foremost this morning and say that's an uncomfortable thing that we wrestle with. It's an uncomfortable reality that we're not the boss. We're created. And you know that we're created to worship. We're created to serve. We're created to give our affection and our attention to something. We're made for it. First and foremost, we're made to relate to God as our proper authority. Relate to him in right relationship. But even if we as human beings reject that, we reject him and his authority in our lives, how many of you guys know we will fill that place of mastery over our lives with something, won't we? Every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, will fill that place in our lives. We'll serve someone or something. It's in our design though we don't like to recognize that reality. When we read the word, the Bible kind of assumes that we know this about ourselves. When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he helped us understand that we naturally will serve someone or something and we can't really divide that primary allegiance in our lives, right? What does he say? You can't serve two masters because in reality, we're gonna serve something. Throughout Paul, we read that we're no longer slaves to sin or slaves to the law, but we're slaves to Christ. That word also makes us uncomfortable, and Peter also uses that word in our passage today. Um, you know what struck me this week? Reading through James and Jude. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus from Mary and Joseph. Now, they didn't have God as their father as Jesus did, but they had Mary as their mother and Joseph as their father. Jesus' half-brothers, if you read through the biblical account, they kind of doubt him along the way, but ultimately, they come to believe in him as well. And then they both write letters in the New Testament and describe themselves using that word, we're slaves of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys have siblings? Any of your siblings ever going to say something like that? I doubt it. But they define themselves first as slaves of Jesus Christ, using the word doulos or bondservants. And that word makes us very uncomfortable. We have to remember this is not a term with the massive sort of negative connotations of American chattel slavery in our history. This word is used, as commentators in the New Testament say, with the highest level of dignity, namely of believers who willingly come under Christ's authority as his devoted followers to make ourselves willingly servants to Christ is considered to be the highest place we can have as far as scripture is concerned. But we were made to worship something. God gave us capacity for attention and adoration so that we could first properly attach ourselves to him in the relationship we were made for. Colossians 1.16 says this, all things were made through him and for him. We were made for him. We belong to him. 
That's the reality of scripture over our lives. It's the relationship that we were destined for before the fall that we were made and lived in. And that's also the relationship that Jesus has made a way for us to resume with him forever. But he also gave us a choice, didn't he? He gave us free will, the freedom to choose whom or what we would serve. You see, alongside scripture's recognition that we're going to serve something, it makes this constant plea to you and me. It says, choose whom you will serve. Choose whom you will serve. Over and over again, it says, choose wisely where you're going to give your attention, your adoration, your allegiance in your life. In Joshua chapter 24, many of you guys have seen this. Many of you guys have this plastered in your house somewhere. Echoing Moses, his mentor, who gave this same call, Joshua said to the people, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to tell us today, lordship isn't something we often talk about. Lordship of our lives. But lordship of our lives is the most fundamental starting place for how we build our lives. Whom it is that we will serve. It dictates the way we relate to one another. It dictates every facet of our lives, our decisions, and yes, all those practical things, how we will speak, how we will listen, how we will think, how we will act. Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, anybody read that one? Real big popular book back in the day. He gave an example, maybe you've heard this example before, about how we manage our lives and what's important to us. He told the story of a business expert speaking to a, a group of young business students. And the business expert pulled out a giant jug, a, kind of a, a gallon jug mason jar, and he started filling it with big rocks. Some of you guys are starting to realize what example this is now. He began to ask the student as he filled it with big rocks, okay, is this jar full? And they responded, yes, enthusiastically, as students only can. And then he reached under the table and pulled out a bag full of gravel and started to pour it into the jar, shaking it so that the gravel would find its way down into the cracks and the spaces. And then he grabbed a bag of sand and did the same thing, shaking it into the spaces. And each time he asked them, is it full? And they started to wise up each time he would grab something from below the counter. And so finally, by the last one, they said, no, it's not full, expecting something else. And sure enough, he grabbed a pitcher of water and poured it into the same thing until it was full to the brim. He asked them what the point of the story was in the lesson. And they piped up and said, the lesson here is that we can always fill our time with more. That sounds like an American lesson, right? There's always margin. You can max out your capacity and you need to be given 120%. That's what they thought the lesson was. And he said, no, no, not quite. You got it a little bit wrong there. The point of this is that if we don't start with the big rocks first, we'll never fit in all the things we could. We have to start with the big rocks first. I want to realize today that building our lives is kind of like filling up that jar with a variety of things in our lives. And we have the same choice. What are the biggest rocks we're going to put in? And the biggest possible rock is whom we will serve as our master in our lives and Lord of our lives. Lordship is important. It dictates everything about what we will do. It's the most important decision and it will determine the strength of our lives. It will determine the flow of our lives. So let's talk options. Let's talk about the options that we have before us. 
Because God gave us freedom of choice on this. He didn't dictate, like, you have to choose me and program us ahead of time to be little robots who will love him and him only. He gives us choice. And we got to be real about that. There are a lot of options, a lot of things vying to be Lord of our lives, aren't there? Many, many things. And the question is there, what will we let dictate our actions, our decisions, our lives? And I want to say today, not what will we say is Lord of our lives, but what will our lives prove is Lord of our lives? There are many things that want to dictate our lives. Maybe cultural norms and experiences, you know, expectations in our world. You know, we're constantly, whether we have our phones or whatever, we're constantly being told what the expectation of us is. Every moment of every day. And it's very easy to let that define how we act. Maybe it's the opinions and the desires of others. In our world, you know, consumerism is a pretty big thing. Constant desire to experience the best life. It can drive our actions. Maybe it's a particular type of pleasure or a particular feeling that we're seeking that starts to dictate how we act and how we feel in certain situations. Let me say this. Maybe we give authority over our lives and lordship over our lives to a particular person in our lives. And talk to parents in the room for a minute. How many times do we find ourselves letting our kids dictate everything about our lives and our family and what we do? Are we real in church this morning? Who's running the house, right? We see that over and over again. We gotta be real about that. And since this is America, we often live to work instead of work to live, right? Sometimes we let work be our master. We let it be our idol. We let it be our primary authority of what's letting our lives fall in place. The reality is this, there are so many things that you and I encounter on a daily basis that wants to set the agenda for us, that wants to say this is how your life flows, that wants to get behind the wheel and drive our lives. But when Jesus enters the scene in our lives, he calls us by name, and he calls us to a totally different way. And it starts with this biggest rock in our lives. Who will be Lord? If we say yes to Jesus and follow him, we give him the authority in our lives. Not just to be Savior, but Savior and Lord. Amen? Amen. Someone said it like this. Christ is not a surname. It doesn't mean that's his last name. Oh yeah, Jesus, Christ, Christ comma Jesus. Christ is not a surname. It means the anointed one, the one who has the proper authority to rule and reign. That's who he is. So when Jesus enters our lives, there is only one proper action that we can take, which is to give him authority and let him be Lord. Reminds me of words which... I know a handful of people in this room will be familiar with. See if you can remember this. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Anybody know where that comes from? That is from the oath of allegiance taken by those becoming citizens of our nation. You know, many times we come to Jesus and it looks a little different than that, if we're honest, right? Many times we come to Jesus and we get one half of the reality. 
that he came to save us and restore us. To reconcile us to the Father, but in reality, that doesn't answer the full picture of our lives. That doesn't speak to the part of us that is created to worship and to serve. When we come to Jesus, it's for him to become Savior and Lord of our lives. And only he can step into those shoes. Maybe our prayer daily of surrender to Jesus needs to sound a little bit more like the citizenship oath. God, today, I'm laying down anything else in my life that I've been subject to, anything else that I've let drive in my life, I lay it down and I declare that you alone are Savior of my life, but also Lord of my life. Back to Peter. You know, Peter isn't just talking to a group of people who are coming under the Lordship of Christ, but he's instructing the scattered and persecuted church throughout the Roman world. If you look at who he's writing to, he's, he's writing to the group of churches who are enduring persecution and suffering. And he's talking to them specifically about how to relate to the governing authorities on earth, here and now. And look at what he calls them to. Once again, he says, you need to submit to earthly authority. Human institutions, you need to submit to those things. God allows and uses human authority and institutions for his purposes. That makes us uncomfortable. Anybody else kind of uncomfortable with that as we look at the government and things like that? Like, wow, I don't know how God does that. But all throughout scripture, we see it. And that does not mean that those institutions and authorities are perfect. Far from it. But if you read through the word, you'll realize God doesn't only use perfect institutions and authorities. You know, maybe you could look up, I don't know, Nebuchadnezzar. Right? And see all kinds of things throughout, both in the people of God and outside the people of God. God works through human institutions and authority. And Peter and Paul both write to groups of people under very imperfect systems and empire. But they both call them to submit, to participate, and to the best of their ability, be good citizens and do good to one another. And we're called to the same. We're called, just like Paul said in Romans last week and is echoed all throughout the word of God, to submit to those in authority over us. Think about this. This is how God called his people to act even when they were carried into exile in Jeremiah 29. Many of us love that because of Jeremiah 29, 11. God has a future and a purpose for me, all that kind of stuff. But did you know earlier in the chapter, he's speaking to the exile and he says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which you've been carried in exile. Be good citizens even in your exile. The important thing that we take away from the conversation of Scripture on how we relate to authority is that no human authority or earthly government system surprises God in any way. He's not surprised by it. He's not surprised what's by happening in our government right now. No human authority surprises him or poses any threat to his sovereignty and his purposes. He works, though, in and through those systems, whether we like it or not. As Jesus said to Pilate, when standing on trial about to be executed, ultimately moments from being sentenced to death by Pilate, he looks at him and he says this, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. Saying, even you need to understand that authority is something God works through. The governing rulers over our lives, they're there for a reason, 
and God wants us to do our very best to be good citizens. John Tyson says there's five functions the human institution of government should fulfill, should exist to fulfill, facilitate. Number one is order. Number two is justice. Number three is virtue. Number four is prosperity. And number five is safety. Now we can easily look at our world and say it doesn't always happen like that, especially on some of those. And of course, there is a line when human institutions and authority overstep their calling, and there's a limit to our obedience. We're not going to get into that today, but I promise we will in this series. But above all, we're called to do our part to be good citizens, but also to keep our allegiances in proper order. Proper order. When Peter writes here, before he says, honor the emperor, he says something else first. He says, fear the Lord. First, fear the Lord. It's proper order. I like Dave Beering's definition of what the fear of the Lord is, and if you read through your Bible, you'll see this term everywhere, fear of the Lord. It means reverencing him and referencing him in all that we do. That's simple enough, huh? Reverencing him and referencing him in all that we do. We need that reminder of our primary allegiance. You know, along with so many other things vying to be masters of our lives and Lord in our lives, Sometimes as we look at our world, we realize that it's easy for us to put government and politics and things like that in the driver's seat, in the wrong place. It's easy for us to let the undying cycle of information and opinion constantly swirling around us and agenda be the thing that we reverence and reference first in conversation rather than the Lord. And here, I want to make sure this is clear. We should and we can talk about politics and political things. We should and can talk about things that are, we're voting on as God's people. But we should make sure that the thing in the center of the table between us as we have those discussions is the word of God. And that we're caught up in its gravity, not the would-be saviors and lords on the left and the right or anywhere else. Amen? Amen. Said John Tyson, Christians obey the state. We don't worship it. We belong to Jesus. As Peter says, we are foreigners and exiles, sojourners on this earth with an ultimate allegiance in heaven. We belong to Jesus, and that is what matters most about us. That is the biggest rock in our lives, and that determines how we think, how we act, how we listen, how we speak, and every other area of our lives. But we have to say this, from the first century AD until now, That has been an unpopular choice. It's never been the popular choice. It's always easier to let other things be Lord of our lives or follow other authorities out of proper order. But there is only one who is worthy of our ultimate allegiance and worship. So we join with the ancient confession of our faith, saying with our hearts and our lips and our lives, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was the rallying cry of God's people from the day of the ascension. Jesus is Lord. And as one person said, there are no love seat thrones. He shares our affections and our allegiance with no one. And our God is a jealous God. There are no love seat thrones. To the recipients of Paul's letter and Peter's letter and many other letters of the New Testament, That confession, Jesus is Lord, cost them something all along the way. 
But they had made their choice. No matter how unpopular it was then, no matter how unpopular it is now. And in return, they stepped into a whole new way of life and discovered it was a life full of hope and promise. Peter goes on in this next chapter, 1 Peter 3.15, he says this as an instruction to the same people. He says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And then, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Think about that. Set apart Christ as Lord. Take that step. It's going to make you look funny in your world, maybe in your office, maybe amongst your family members even, if you live this way. But then be ready to tell them why you have such vibrant hope. Because when we choose Jesus, not just as our homeboy, not just as our savior or a ticket to heaven, but we make him truly Lord of our lives, that's when we begin to find what we sung about today, that he'll never fail us. He won't. He will always be there. We find our life and our hope and a firm foundation when everything else is shaking, when we choose to go all in on Jesus and give him his proper place on the throne of our hearts. When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we discover that he has always known every need we have and every desire, the Bible says. And he doesn't just want to meet them and satisfy those needs. He blows those things away in our lives. Even to his people in exile, the promise of God was this. You'll seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When we bank it all on him, and we put our hope and all of our, our trust in his finished work for us and his full promises that he makes to us, we find a hope that does not disappoint. It becomes that anchor for our soul. No matter what storms come, we're going to be just fine. It's that peace that makes no sense that we talked about today. Jesus promises to us a future and a hope that nothing on earth can cut off. And Peter says that other people are going to take notice when we live like that. Other people are going to go, I don't understand how you can be calm with this going on in your life. You see, the other things that want to be masters of our life, that pull at our time, our focus, our energy, that drain us, they can't hold a candle to the hope we have when we make Jesus Lord of our lives. The other would-be masters, they talk a lot of talk and make a lot of promises. But as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, those philosophies are empty and hollow and deceitful. Every other master we could serve to give our ultimate allegiance and time and energy, they'll take everything from us and leave us still in chains, wanting more. But Jesus, the true master, he gave everything for us so that we could be set free. And for freedom, he set us free. Freedom he secured for us is freedom that goes beyond our wildest imagination. Jesus makes an unparalleled promise to us of life more abundantly. He's talking about the life we were made for, the life of Eden, of walking with him every single day, having our needs and our desires fully satisfied. Amen? That sounds good to me. So whatever the greatest thing you could imagine, it pales in comparison to what God desires for you. It pales in It can't even hold a candle. It can't even begin to scratch the surface of what Jesus wants to set free in your life. God isn't up in heaven saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just calm down a minute. That's a, big, that's a big task you set for me. Dream a little smaller, Cub Scout. He's not doing that up in heaven. He's begging us to dream bigger, 
He's begging us to imagine more, to trust him when he promises to us that rivers of living water will flow from us. It's an unparalleled promise that Jesus makes. You know, our life this side of eternity is going to have its ups and downs. But he alone will never let us down. He alone is worthy of our adoration because he alone can step into this place in our lives. So when we choose to say, Jesus, I'm truly making you Lord of my life. If I don't know what to do about a situation, I'm not turning on the news. I'm going to your word. I'm talking to people who know you deeper than I do. You're going to be Lord of my life. When we choose to live like that, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. It gives permission for his Holy Spirit to work on us, to correct things in us, to point out where we've let other things slip onto that throne instead of him. But everything in our life flows from having this first thing first, from having this big rock settled in place before we put anything else on the agenda or the calendar. As Peter said it, in this chapter we read, he is the chief cornerstone of our lives. Not just individually, but together as his church, he is the chief cornerstone for us together, the rock on which we are built. The problem today, in and outside the church, isn't that the love of Jesus and his promises aren't compelling enough or aren't good enough for us. It's just that they're one of the many, many things in our daily mix. You know, the devil loves to come alongside and divert our attention, to let our distractions become diversions. We have to make it so clear that, Jesus, you are first in my life. I've got a lot of stuff going on, but nothing supersedes your authority in my life. We have so many options. It's so easy for us to lose sight of what is most important. But let's realize the truth today. You and I were made, created, with the capacity to love and to serve and to worship. We've been called by name to make an unpopular choice, to let the only one worthy of our worship receive it from us. And he promises us that if we'll live like this, he'll give us a brand new life and a future that we can be sure of. Amen? Amen. Amen. In a few moments, we're going to receive communion. And if you didn't receive communion elements, you can slip out to the lobby and grab some now. But today in this house, I want us to remember who we are. It's a simple passage we read through today, but it speaks to us deeply about who we are, our identity in Christ. So who are we, church? We're the people who are united by our common confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is on the throne of our lives. We're the people being built into a holy temple together for the Spirit of God to dwell in. And we have Jesus as our chief cornerstone. As we receive Holy Communion, we recognize everything that he's done for us to make it possible for us to even come back to him in the first place. We celebrate the true Lord who gave it all for us so we could choose to come back home so we could experience that life more abundantly, so that we could have peace that doesn't make sense and joy in the middle of chaos. All of Scripture calls us 
and says, as we receive this meal, this symbolic meal together, we should examine our hearts. Isn't that what Paul said in Corinthians? We should look at our hearts as we receive this together. Once again, the test of what we believe and what is first and primary in our lives isn't what we say we believe. It's what we live out in our daily lives. Are we reverencing and referencing him in all we do? Are we walking in the fear of the Lord with our time, with our focus and our attention, with our affections? What do those things tell us about who's on the throne of our hearts? I want to invite you today, as we celebrate Holy Communion, I want to invite you just in your own way, first reaffirm Jesus as Lord of your life. And maybe you've never taken that step today. I want to invite you, if you're in that place and you're saying, you know what? I've been dancing around this for long enough. Maybe I've spoken it with my lips, but with my heart, I haven't put him on the throne. Today, let's affirm that age-old saying of every follower of Jesus, Jesus is Lord of my life. Let's come back to him and give him his rightful place in our hearts, in our agendas, in our daily grinds. Let's reaffirm him as the Lord of our lives. And as we do this, we do it together. You know, because we're not just little islands. All of our life is life together as his church. We're becoming one family in Christ Jesus. So let me encourage you, as you first kind of think about this and reflect as the piano plays, look at what your life says about your affections and who's Lord of your life. But then I want to encourage you to grab somebody and pray with them and receive Holy Communion with them. We'll talk about what the elements of communion mean and the band will begin to play. Grab somebody and walk through it with them. Be real with them and pray over one another. If there are areas of your life in which you've been struggling, where you need healing, where you need a touch from God, be real. Ask for those things. Maybe there's areas of your life where you're struggling to give up control. Again, this is an uncomfortable thing for every single one of us. We like control. Maybe there's an area where you're saying, I'm struggling of giving this up to God and surrendering it to him. Can you pray with me? There's power when we pray together over those things. So have somebody pray with you. And if there are other things in your life that maybe occasionally, maybe continually, have been taking Jesus' place on your throne. You know, this is a place where our first attitude as God's people is to confess that, right? Say, you know what? I've been letting other things in the driver's seat. Today I want to just ask the Lord to help me to put those things in their proper place and put him back where he belongs. It's a place where we can confess and not be judged. But the experience of healing that comes when we confess is what James writes about in chapter 5 when he says, confess your sins one to another, not that you may be forgiven. Forgiveness is ready and available already. It says, confess these things so that you might experience the healing that flows when we come back into right relationship with Jesus. We need each other for this. So I want to encourage you again, we're going to receive Holy Communion. Let's take stock of our lives and let's pray with one another. Amen? We have the elements before you. They speak to us of different things in our lives. When Jesus took the bread after supper, that last supper, and he broke it, giving it to the disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. When you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. And the bread speaks to us of what he wants to give us for all of our brokenness and the areas of our life that maybe sometimes feel like a mess. He wants to bring his wholeness into our lives. 
He wants to restore and rebuild us and present us together as his church as a spotless bride. He wants to bring healing in every area of our lives. So if you have an area you need healing from, let's put him on the throne of our lives and let's trust him for healing as we receive the bread together. Let's receive it. After supper, he also took the cup, sharing it with them. He told them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Because of what I'm about to do for you, he said, you'll always have forgiveness available when you turn to me with all your heart. So anytime our attitudes and our affections have been in the wrong place, you know what, that's not beyond God to fix. So we simply come to him and say, thank you, Jesus, that everything I've ever gotten wrong or will ever get wrong is under your blood today. Because of what you've done, I can live in this new covenant relationship with you. Thank you for your blood. Let's receive and come together. Before we pray together and have some time of worship, I want to read to you sort of a benediction today from Jesus's half-brother Jude. The last words of the book of Jude say this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen, amen. Would you stand with me? Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.